The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for this episode with Barron's reporters, Al Root and Nicholas Jasinski. Today, we'll be talking about the bank panic. It's not a crisis yet the Fed, and this week's earnings, among other subjects. So welcome, Al and Nick. Thanks for joining Barron's Live today. Thanks. Happy Monday. Happy Happy Monday, Monday. Ben. Hi, Nick. Um, So let's jump right in here. Uh, So, Nick, the banking sector, it's been in turmoil since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The problem has spread to other regional banks in the U.S., to Credit Suisse. Even last week, Deutsche Bank, its stock was falling because it's credit default swaps, these things that kind of act like insurance on on, uh, stocks or on on the bonds of uh, companies spiked, uh, cost a lot more to protect against it. What does the panic look like now on Monday? Well, so the, the latest news was this morning, um, announced in a 1 a.m. press release, um, and that's that First Citizens Bank shares is going to take over pretty much all of the assets and liabilities of Silicon Valley Bank. That's in a deal brokered by the FDIC. Um, First Citizens, not a lot of people have heard of it. It's a, it's a bank, it's a regional bank based in North Carolina, um, which before this deal at least had been the 30th or so largest bank in the U.S. by assets. Um, and the FDIC is really behind that deal. They're also going to share up to 50% of commercial loan losses in excess of $5 billion with First Citizens. Um, so this this deal is it's not without cost to the federal insurance fund. It, it um, sounds like for, a, a sweet deal almost. For First Citizens, for it's, First a, Citizens. it's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, they're getting a discount on the assets. And and uh, and like I said, they're, they're going to share any potential losses. Um um, as for what the overall banking situation looks like right now, it's it continues to really be a day by day sort of thing. Um, like you mentioned on Friday, Deutsche Bank was a center of concern. Today, things are looking good again. The um, the S and P Bank ETF Spider um, KBE is the ticker there. That's up about four percent. Um, First Republic Bank, which is another one that's that's been a source of concern lately, that's up more than thirty percent. And First Citizens, um, that's the one that's buying SVB. Investors seem to like that deal. It's it's up around forty percent to close to a record high, or maybe just about a record high. Um, but I should add that this is just this is more day to day volatility that's driven by the latest headlines. Tomorrow, everything might be down again. It might be up again. Um, the the KBE ETF that's still down twenty five percent since the start of this month. Wow. So it's not like investors think that the damage is all gone and and there's no risk left. Um, I think that the 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 past few weeks have taught us that there are some hidden risks lurking in corners of the U.S. and banking and European banking sectors, and um, and it's hard to tell in advance where those exactly are. Um, I think there will be opportunities in individual bank stocks, especially with the, the massive drop that many of them have suffered in the past few weeks. Um, but the overall volatility and scariness, I don't think, is over yet. And speaking of those individual bank stocks, it seems like uh, there are a bunch of analysts out there who, you know, some have been bullish throughout the whole thing. I saw one who finally uh, ended coverage of uh, SIVB today. Um, but uh, there are some that are they're very bullish on some stocks. Al, can you walk us through what's happening? Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, I think so. You know, today, Keith Horowitz at Citigroup 
uh, bank analyst, you know, he upgraded uh, M&T Bank and KeyBank to buy from hold. And so, you know, this this could be now there's a couple of things. First of all, I don't think bank analysts have covered themselves in glory through this. <laughs> what do you uh, mean now? Well, you know, like, you know, up until, um, you know, at the beginning of the year, you know, a majority of analysts, you know, rated Signature right. Bank a buy. Uh, at least half of the analysts going into March rated SIVB a buy. Um, my favorite one was um, First, Na- uh, First National, the bank uh, that has experienced some trouble. You know, you know, the one analyst went from uh, you know a buy rating to a hold rating and took his price target from one forty. Is that to First National or First Republic? First Republic. I'm sorry. First Republic. Okay. The New York, the one across from our office, um, you know, slashed his price target from one forty to five, right? So you know, they they've been a little bit behind the curve, but. You know, now that these stocks are down and things are starting potentially, you know, like the form of solutions, you know, insuring uninsured deposits, you know, deals with the FDIC like this one, um, you know, maybe we're in a sixth, seventh, eighth inning of it and you're getting some analyst upgrading banks. So, so uh, Citibank upgraded Key Bank and M&T Bank today. You know, these two regional banks, they're trading right now at about six and a half, seven times earnings. They usually trade at about nine or ten times earnings. Mm-hmm. I think what's important, you know, from from the city note is that one of the things that's happening is right. You're replacing, you know, there's a risk that you know your uninsured deposits will flee to a larger organization, right? So um, that's a problem. But for banks with appropriate liquidity plans, they can replace that with different kinds of funding, you know, going to the Fed or or debt or whatever. But it's more expensive, right? So you have more expensive funding, so you have less earnings, right? So these earnings estimates for these banks are probably too high. Okay. But, you know, we're at a level where the good ones, you know, he feels like they're upgradable. So, you know, it's it's I find it intriguing. I think, uh, you know, you can all you should always start taking looks, you know, never waste a crisis. Start taking looks. And if you want to nibble away at M&T or KeyBank because Keith likes them, I think that's not a bad idea. Um, can you be, should you be doing it today, though? Um, I know KeyBank is up. Uh, KeyCore is up four uh, percent. Um, uh, M&T Bank uh, are, is actually only up 1.8%, uh, which is interesting. It's not so much given uh, the uh, the move overall in the KBE. Um, it, it, I mean, should we be buying them on up days, wait for down days? Uh, any well, thoughts on that? I mean, hey, well, first of all, I'm going to turn around and ask you what you would do because <laughs> you have experience in the markets. I'm going to tell you dollar cost averaging is the investor's friend. Yeah. Right? Little today, little tomorrow. You know, but that's that's very true. And I'm the George Costanza of trading. You basically want to do uh, the opposite of whatever I say. Right. Um, so, so Nick, we've been watching what's going on in the banks, and there's this feeling now that you know maybe the panic is ended. We're going to see you know maybe fewer bank runs than than we had been, and that kind of thing. But now people are talking about the other impacts of this on the banking sector um, and the the economic impact. Can you tell us a little bit what's happening there? Yeah, so th- there's certainly an impact on the availability of credit, which I think it's too early to quantify right now. But um, so F- Fed Chair Jerome Powell last week at his at his post meeting press conference said that the results of all this could be the equivalent of 25 or 50 basis points of an increase in the Fed funds rate. Um, I've seen some other estimates from economists in my inbox that this could end up being more like a point and a half of additional Fed funds rate increases. Um, it's really it's too early to confidently put a number on on the impact, but it's highly likely that the result of the past few weeks will be tighter credit conditions and less lending, um, particularly by the smaller regional banks 
which do a lot more of the lending to small businesses and the main street economy than the, the big Wall Street institutions. Um, some may just be more cautious in, in their lending and who can blame them. Um, other regional banks may have no choice but to pull back on lending if they've experienced a big outflow of deposits lately. They, they just have less capital available to lend. Um, and back to the economics textbooks, it's less credit expansion means slower economic growth. Um, it's just too early to put a number on that. And But it's people are trying to put numbers on things already. Um, Al, I know today you wrote about uh, Caterpillar, um, yeah. and it was downgraded largely because of what's going on in the banks, right? Yeah, it's interesting, right? So, you know, it's this intersection of, uh, you know, banking and credit creation and then sort of the real economy, right? So uh, Barrett had a really interesting note, uh, Mick Dobray, uh, the machinery analyst, right? And he downgraded CAT, you know, pointed out that 70% of commercial real estate loans are held by regional banks. So stress in the regional banking system equals less uh, financing for commercial uh, real estate projects. You know, commercial real estate, it's not just office buildings, it's schools, it's uh, hospitals, it's airports. All of that stuff is commercial, um, which means less demand for construction equipment, right? So you have, you know, this line of, you know, oh, stress and credit, I'm downgrading CAT and United Rentals. Right. So he sees softening and, you know, uh, you know, he's using terms like, you know, backlog peaking and all these sorts of industrial and and things. But really, it's a function of the banks. And then, you know, we were chatting with uh, Wedbush analyst Dan Ives last week. And he's a tech analyst, covers some other things. And he was saying that, you know, he sees he's been writing and seeing that, you know, the potential for consolidation in, in tech land is higher, you know, with the buyers being, you know, well capitalized, publicly traded companies and some of these startups uh, might have a little bit harder time getting financing, right? So it's how stress in the bank leads to, you know, the ripple effects lead to other areas of the economy. You know, most notably in like anything connected to commercial real estate, there's a little bit of fear about that these days. And then, you know, any of these follows from from the SIVB thing in uh, in the Valley. Got it. Um, and yet, uh, the Federal Reserve came out last week, and they uh, they hiked uh, a quarter point into a uh, banking panic. We're, we're not calling it a crisis, mm-hmm. um, and um, it didn't surprise anybody. I mean, the odds uh, in the, in the uh, Fed fund future market were very high. I think they were over eighty percent that they would get a quarter point hike. Um, but you still have people who say that, uh, despite the odds suggesting that that was the the right thing to do, that it was more that uh, I think it was Barry Knapp over at Ironsides Macros was saying that uh, this was more of a sign that the market was confident that the Fed was going was headed directly at an iceberg and was determined to crash into it. Al, what do you make of this argument? Yeah, I um, we spoke with Barry last week, and then uh, you know Barry was at uh, Lehman Brothers uh, before that uh, went down in the in the Great Financial Crisis. Right. So he has he has uh, some good context. He's not really a fan, I, you know, crashing into the iceberg. I think we can call him not a fan of the Fed and its current policy. And actually, we spoke right after the, the Fed race. Basically, he thinks that the Fed's looking at the wrong data. The, the the composition of the Federal Open Market Committee doesn't have enough market savvy to sort of react fast enough to what's been going on in banking. And, you know, he partly blames the Fed for engineering this crisis, right? We have an inverted yield curve. You know, short rates are higher than long rates. That's a disaster for banks that borrow short and lend long. It basically locks in losses unless you're really good at hedging interest rates, something that regional banks might not be so good at. 
His, his basic argument is the, the bank crisis is the same as a Fed tightening, so why bother tightening more? And he's also pointing out that, you know, this great argument of uh, volume precedes price, right? This is a little analogy or adage that goes into many arenas. Volume precedes price. Uh, price precedes volume. So um, the, the, you know, real wage growth has been falling for about six months. And so, you know, he's using that as a sign for labor weakness. And the Fed's, you know, focused on these jobs numbers, which, you know, indicate that things are good. And the last thing with this jobs, like if you look at the, the summary of economic projections for, uh, from the Fed last week, they're projecting a one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate by the end of the year. So basically they're saying we're headed, we're, that's, that's a 1% uh, increase in the unemployment rate over six to nine months. That's a recession. So yeah. he basically is saying, see, look, the Fed thinks they're driving in an iceberg and they're quite happy to do it. Uh, safe to say, Barry's not a fan. Okay, now that's a downer view, um, and um, I, I think sometimes it's it's easy to um, look at these kind of more bearish views and to cling on to them. Um, but there's another side to this, Nick. What's the optimistic way of looking at things? Yeah, sure. I'll take the uh, the counterpoint. So, um, I guess remember that just at the start of March, we were debating about whether we would get a half point or a quarter point hike at last week's meeting. And then how many more would come after that? This was right after the January jobs numbers had come in hot. February was pretty strong as well. Core inflation had actually begun to reaccelerate in the start of 2023. Um, futures markets were pricing in a way higher Fed funds rate by the start of the summer. Treasury yields at the short end were all well above 5%. Um, so in fact, by only hiking by a quarter point last week, keeping the also keeping the dot plot basically unchanged, um, and more or less signaling that the end of hikes is near. By doing all of that, the Fed did come in easier than they otherwise would have absent the bank drama um, and easier than the lagging economic data at the time was arguing for. And you can see that now in the, in the much lower treasury yields and in the futures market pricing today. So you can call it tone deaf that they still hike, but officials are clearly, they're still trying to fight inflation while also containing the bank problems. And arguably, they threaded the needle with a kind of dovish hike, if that's a, maybe it's an oxymoron, <laughs> but, but that's sort of what it came out as last week. Um, but it's, I mean, no doubt, it's a more challenging task now, and, and there's just more potential for a mistake because of how much uncertainty there is and because it is still day-by-day -day evolving banking situation. And um, I mean, the Fed, bottom line, the Fed is trying to walk and chew gum at the same time. Which I think Al can attest that some of us are uh, better than doing, better at doing than others. Yeah, I know I have a lot of a pretty hard time doing that. So I think every, I hope everybody got that veiled shot at me, but unfortunately, <laughs> he's right. Um, so Al, do you buy it? Do you buy this argument? I mean, so we all play economist in our uh, you know spare time, right? You know, I I would prefer to be thinking about electric vehicles, cars, and you know, making widgets at some plant in the Midwest. Um, the Fed, I, I believe that the Fed basically helped engineer this crisis and that they're trying to back their way out of it. You know, I'll buy those arguments. You know, you know, Barry has his point of view. Nick's arguments are all very, uh, salient. It's, it's, I would say, I, I basically go with, I agree with Nick that the risk of an error is way higher, right? So now we're sort of like, we're, we're bouncing along and we're doing okay, but now the risk is that the bottom falls out. Not that everything is great. 
Um, I mean, the hard part about all this is, and the reason why I think about it is that, you know, the, the stock market basically goes up most of the time. I mean, it's it's some ridiculous number, like 70% of the time the stock market goes up. I might actually be understating it. And most of the time when you have a bad year, the next year is a good year. Um, and, and so there's a lot that suggests, you know, you, you want to be bullish when you're a stock investor. Um, uh, we also know that over 10 year periods, the stock market generally goes up as well. So again, pays to be bullish the stock market, but you do get these periods where things do not go right, um, where you get, you know, the, the dot-com bubble or you get the, um, uh, or, or you get the financial crisis or you get the 1970s, which was basically a decade of uh, very volatile sideways trading. And if you try to be bullish, just use the, the buy and hold kind of template within those kind of markets, they could be very painful. So with that being said, Hey, Ben, can I yes, say one thing? Please. So it's funny, you know, we talk into strategists to write columns and do all these things. Uh, Chris uh, Senek at Wolf Research yesterday, we were arguing about the shape of the recovery, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants, you know, V-shaped, U-shaped, W-shaped, K-shaped. He was like, I think this is an L, <laughs> which is not encouraging. He expected it just to be just a flat line. Yeah. No, it's uh, and that's it's it's a very possible outcome here. Um, and so, Nick, um, one of the things I was wondering is I know there was a, a note that came out over the weekend that tried to look at some things that you'd want to pay attention to uh, if things were to see if things were starting to break. Would you mind walking us through some of that? Yeah, so I believe you're referring to a note from uh, Julian Emanuel over at um, Evercore. He's an equity strategist there. Um, and he points to three indicators in particular. Um, I should say his his base case is that we get a retest of the October lows in the S and P 500, which were around um, 3,500, 3,600, somewhere in between there, versus just below 4,000 today. Um, so a significant decline. Um, so he has yeah three indicators. Um, he points to the two-year Treasury yield falling below 3.45 percent as a major pressure point. He calls it. Um, which is essentially, that means he's, that the bond market is worried about a recession um, and, and an impending one, given that's in the, on the short end of the curve. Um, people tend to pile into the safety of treasuries when they're worried about other assets going into a recession. Um, right now, the two-year yield is around 3.9%, um, but that's down from over 5% a month ago, 5.1%. Um, similar to that, he's watching the price of gold, which is up 10% or so this year. Um, he says that if it trades above $2,100 an ounce, $2,100 an ounce, then that's a sign of more stress to come. Um, right now, we're at about $1,950 on the gold price. Um, and then finally, it goes back to the banks. He's watching the regional bank stocks, um, which, I mean, despite a dreadful month, um, are still in a technical uptrend that began in 2020. Um, he's worried about if the group continues to sell off because people are worried about more problems with the banks. Um, and drops below the trend line, um, then that's a, that's a sign of, of more shoes to drop. Um, so those are, I, I think those are three pretty good things to watch. Bonds and gold signaling collective widespread economic concern um, and banks continuing to falter. Um, if, if those three things happen, then, then Emmanuel argues that it's, it's bombs away for the S&P 500. Is there anything else that uh, Al, you or Nick, uh, either of you are watching? Nick, why don't you go? You can talk valuation. Um, yeah, I mean, valuations. So right now, the S&P 500 is around 17 and a half times forward earnings. Um, as recently as mid-February, it was at 19 times. Um, last October at the lows, it got down to 15 times. Small caps are, are way cheaper. They got hit harder over the past month. Um, 
so for, for me, I mean, I'm watching earnings estimates um, right now. I'm just going to keep throwing numbers at you. Consensus for the S&P 500 this year, earnings per share is $222, which is versus $219 last year. So let's call it one, one and a half percent growth this year. Um, but that's down a lot from where the, the 2023 estimate was. Um, that was in the 240s not very long ago. Um, but when I look at the quarterly estimates, um, it's really the estimates have come down a lot for the first and second quarter and much less so for the third and fourth quarter. Um, and I think that goes back to this range of plausible economic outcomes being so wide for the rest of this year. So analysts may just be waiting for greater certainty before adjusting their forecasts for the back half of the year. Um, but the risk is that those estimates continue to come down, um, which would just make this market even more expensive. And this gets back to this kind of lose-lose proposition when, when all you look at is earnings estimates and valuations. Either the banking turmoil passes and the economy holds up, earnings stay afloat, um, but then the Fed doesn't cut nearly as much as futures markets are pricing in. Interest rates stay high, and relative to interest rates, the S&P 500 valuation multiple is pretty rich. Mm-hmm. And then the other scenario is that management teams continue to give cautious guidance and all that. The economy gets worse. Um, analysts end up cutting their third and fourth quarter estimates like they have been for the first half of this year. And then the Fed may, in fact, be inclined to lower interest rates to save the economy in that scenario. But stocks valuation multiple will be rising at the same time because of the falling earnings estimate in the denominator. Um, so from that narrow perspective, it's tough to see much value in the overall S&P 500 at these valuation levels. Um, and so you guys yeah, are in that multiple. You guys are a bearish group. Well, maybe we're going to find better opportunities in individual stocks. We don't get a lot of earnings this week. Next week's actually worse. But there are a few that caught my interest, and I was hoping maybe you could tell me a little bit about. Al, let's start with you. You're our electric vehicle guy at Barron's. Tell us about EVgo. Um, EVgo, I love, yes, is electrical ve- electric vehicle infrastructure, right? So you know, this is a early stage startup company, right? Electric vehicles, we're selling more of them uh, year by year in the U.S., year by year globally. But EVgo is an all U.S. operator and seller of electric vehicle charging equipment. They are selling the fastest type charging. So they're going to lose money. They're going to lose money this year, next year. Uh, so sales is what is relatively more important, sales and cash usage. Cash usage. Um, so, you know, they have already basically said that they're going to meet their guidance of, you know, between 48 and 55 million, uh, in revenue for 2022, given the fact they said that after 2022 is finished, we should have high confidence that they will meet <laughs> estimates of about 20 million in revenue for the quarter. Not be good if they didn't. Yeah, that would be bad. Um, now wall street is project. They'll give guidance. They should give guidance for the full year on Thursday. So I think it's Thursday. Um, so uh, Wall Street's looking for about 145 million. So they're, they're supposed to go basically from 50 million to 150 million in one year, right? So this is the kind of growth they're trying to manage through. So, you know, it becomes this game of if they can guide like that, that's great. Um, you know, what are the odds? Uh, you know, we've, we've seen earnings from uh, Checkpoint. That's another EV producer, uh, EV charging infrastructure producer. You know, they, um, you know, their guidance came in a little below, but, they, you know, they were still expected to grow like 100% year over year. So it is this, you know, we should we should definitely see huge growth out of EVgo and very bullish commentary. And then we have to see what the street does with it, basically. Yeah, there's an EVgo charger in the uh, uh, parking lot of the local um, grocery store here in uh, Brooklyn. Um, which is probably where you would find one. Um, all right, Nick, let's go to you. Let's talk first about uh, Micron. Um, 
chip stock. It's had a good year uh, so far, the last three months, up 22%, down 22% over the last 12 months. So very split there. What's going on? Yeah. Um, so that's, I should say, the earnings are tomorrow as well. Um, it's a, Micron is a memory chip maker, um, and that whole area has been in a pretty steep downturn since since last year. Um, it was really demand spiked for all these kinds of devices in COVID, and it dropped right after COVID, and there was just too much inventory in the channel to work through. Um, these are, I should say, these are memory chips that go into smartphones, PCs, cloud and data centers, and so on, pretty much everything. Um, so the, uh, like I said, it's, it's in a deep downturn right now. Micron sales are forecast to be $3.7 billion in this quarter versus $7.8 billion in the same period a year ago. So, so revenue down by more than half. Um, and it's expected to report a loss of $0.66 cents per share compared with a profit of $2.14 per share a year earlier. Um, the company has they've cut back on CapEx and other spending, but, but clearly it's still a challenging time. And I think what's, what's actually what's more important than the reported quarter, which everybody agrees is going to be bad, um, is just going to be what management has to say about the future. What are inventory levels looking like? Um, basically, is there a light at the end of the tunnel here? Um, it's, uh, it's, it doesn't really make sense to compare it to this year's earnings, but, but Micron, Micron stock is it's cheap relative to 2025 earnings, if you want to look that far out. Um, <laughs> but really, a lot, a lot can no, thank will you. happen between now and then. So. <laughs> Yeah, this is one of those stocks. So if you also, if you look at it, it's done nothing. It's been very range bound for the last you know, since July or so. Um, it'll be interesting to see if it can break out of this range uh, between you yeah, know, I mean, like I think 60 and looking, 50. Everybody's looking for that moment of when you call a bottom on the chip downturn. And yeah. you probably want to be in the stocks before the fundamentals bottom, just because once you once it starts showing up in the quarterly numbers, then the stocks will have run a lot already. But but um I mean, six months ago, people were saying, oh, the bottom is almost here, and it still hasn't quite arrived yet. So it's a tough one. All right. So, Al, let's go back to you. I know you're a big fan of Lululemon, um, Mm -hmm. the clothes, not necessarily the stock, but you're a big fan of the clothes. Tell us about the stock. I may How many items of Lululemon clothing are you wearing right now? Tell us that Uh, first. I am wearing at least two items of Lululemon clothing right now. Uh, I'm a big fan. Now, uh, uh, so... Lululemon, it is sales growth story, right? They're still a grower. They're they're winning winning uh, middle aged dads in droves like me, and so you know they're expected to grow earnings fifteen percent in twenty. So again, so this is Q four, right? So we're looking forward to we want to see what they say about twenty three guidance. Um, now let's just get something out of the way. Their year end is January, so this is they're going to be guiding for their fiscal year twenty twenty four, which ends in January twenty twenty four. I will keep calling it twenty twenty three. Please note that in your uh, notes. So uh, we we want to see what the guide for twenty three. Um, you know the street is at nine point one billion dollars in sales, up from about eight billion this year. They're at uh, the streets at eleven twenty seven in earnings per share. Uh, they're supposed to do about nine. Oh, I can't find it fast enough. They're doing nine. I'm going to just make it up. Roughly speaking, they're doing about 950 this year. So there's about 15% implied growth. If you look at the stock, the stock trades about 28 times forward earnings. And, you know, it got this huge bump from pandemic, right? When we all gained, unfortunately, a little weight, and then we all bought stretchier clothes. So this stock in 2020, 2021 was trading for 30, 40 times earnings. Now it's back trading under 30 times, which makes it look like it, you know, is, you know, 2018, 2019 valuations. What am I saying? So basically, I think this is a very typical setup, right? It's just, you know, as guidance, is it a beat raise? They don't need to do anything heroic. 
it's it's uh, it's it's like a normal setup. And then even if you look at the stock, it's like down two percent year to date, down two percent over the past twelve months. So it's not, you know, I don't think it needs to do heroic numbers. It just needs to, you know, show good execution and growth, and the stock should be fine. Um, and uh, from channel checks, I can guarantee you that the T-shirts are flying off the shelves. All right. Well, we um, this would, I think it'd be a good time for us to go to some listener questions. Um, Al, I'm going to throw this first one to you. Um, this is from David. David asks, in comparing the present losses and potential losses going forward of Ford's EV business to Tesla's profitability record, um, will Ford EV reach profitability quicker or can they be compared? So, uh, you know, uh, that was David? That was David, yes. David, your check is in the mail for asking me an EV question. Um Listen, so it's funny, right? On Thursday, we uh, had Ford uh, resegment their business. So they're, they're not going to report results by ge ge geography anymore. Now they're going to tell you how much their traditional car business did, their commercial business, and their EV business. EV business lost $2.1 billion in uh, 2022, selling about 96,000 units. Um, and that was, that's a margin of about minus 40%. So it's been interesting to watch the analyst notes, right? Oh, this is a disaster. Look how much money they're losing. Oh, this is not so bad. If you ask me, this is basically right about where Ford should be. So they lost $2 billion when Tesla was a similar size. And we're talking 2015, 16 vintage. They were losing about a billion dollars a year. When you say, oh, that's double. Well, Tesla was a startup. You know, it only had one plant and two models, which were built on the same platform at the time, an S and an X. Um, and so they were losing a billion. Ford has three models that make EVs in two plants. Most of their EVs in two plants. They're a legacy automaker. You know, they have higher, they probably have higher cost labor, things like this. Some unionized labor relative to what Tesla was paying in 2015, 2016. So they're losing $2 billion. So when I saw those numbers and I saw their guidance, I said to myself, you know what? Ford, Ford is doing about what you would expect, which is depending on your view encouraging a traditional automaker can actually earn money in EVs if it scales, uh, or you could be very bearish and say, I can't believe this company is going to lose $6 billion, you know, cumulative three years through 2023 trying to sell EVs. Now it's the if, right? So Tesla wasn't really consistently profitable until they made 400,000 cars a year. Uh, Ford, you know, hopes to sell north of 200,000 EVs in 2022. They want to be, excuse me, 2023. They want to be selling a million EVs a year by 26. So if they can scale their EV business and get to that 500, 1 million unit a year mark, the EV, there's every reason to believe the EV business will be profitable. For my money, and I'm an EV, I'm an auto EV optimist, you know, that's pretty good. So I was encouraged. And the message I delivered or thought I was thinking about last week was Ford is doing about just as well as it should. All that's right. it. Sounds good. Um, so, Nick, let's go to you. I'm going to combine two questions here. Ari asks, do you think the Fed will pivot and drop rates in June as inflation comes down? Um, and uh, Hal wants to know, aren't stocks going to pop as soon as the Fed pivots? What do you think? Um, well, so it's good, there's a presumption in Ari's question, which is that inflation comes down. Um, I don't think that that's guaranteed to, for, for that to be somewhere where the Fed can declare victory by June. Um, but I, I mean, this is going to sound like a little bit of a, a cop-out answer, but I think it's actually the right one. Um, 
I don't know how many times Powell said data dependent in the press conference last week, but that was really the message that I got. And what the Fed does at its next meeting in May and then the one after that in June, I think really is going to depend on what the data says. It's not a predetermined path now like it was for a lot of the past year of getting rates to a level that um, was Fed officials considered restrictive. Um, I think now it really just depends on what happens month to month. Um, so Hal's question, are stocks going to pop as soon as the Fed pivots? Um, again, I think that'll depend on the reason for the pivot. If it's because inflation has come down convincingly and the Fed can say, all right, we're taking our, our foot off the, the tightening gas and, and uh, going back to something that's more normal because inflation has come down, then, then yes, absolutely. I think that's good for stocks. If it's because the economy is falling apart and the Fed says, oh, we need to drop interest rates to rescue GDP and, and, uh, and the, the labor market, then there's a lot of other problems that investors are going to be dealing with. And, and I don't think that that's a recipe for stocks to pop. Um, I recall the, in, in March 2020, when, when uh, the Fed did that emergency in between meeting drop in interest rates, stocks tumbled the next day because investors thought, oh, my God, the Fed is really worried about what's going on with the economy. Um, I need to get out of the market. And so, so it's, it's uh, what, what stocks do, I think, will depend on if it's a gradual decline in rates or if it's a sudden reactive drop. Um, yeah. Those are and, very different. And, and there have been other historical situations where the, um, the, the pivot, the, 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 uh, the shift from, uh, from hikes to the pause and the cuts have actually um, coincided with uh, more downside. Um, it happened at, uh, um, in, 19, uh, in, in 2000, uh, 1999, happened in 2007 when the Fed, uh, I believe, started cutting, um, you know, in, in that year. Um, and it was just uh, too late by that that point, uh, though, obviously, you know, we're not dealing with the 2007, 2008, 2009 situation now. Um, a very different market. Um, Al, question for you. Uh, this is an easy one. Can you provide the ticker symbols of the banks that were upgraded to buy from hold? MTB, M&T Bank. And uh, I'm a big fan of, of tickers that make a lot of sense. Key Bank, K-E-Y. All right, great. Um, let's see. So, Nick, let's go back to you. Stocks shot higher in the first quarter. What's your outlook for the second quarter? Will cuts in earnings finally catch up with the stocks and drive them downward this quarter? Um, I'm really I'm not so great at the short term in stocks, but I think that um, again, a lot is going to depend on on what happens with the banks. Um, all that aside. Um, I think we're probably in this kind of a trading range for now. Um, once some of the more long term economic outlook, what's going to happen with inflation and interest rates becomes a little clearer. Um, I'm not as bearish as as uh, as uh, Emmanuel from Evercore who thinks we're going back down to 3,500, um, but I think we're in this sort of volatile, violently flat sideways market. Um, if you're a trader going day to day, then you can probably trade some of these ranges. You can try. Um, you can try. Um, if you're a more long-term investor, then, then I would argue just stick to quality stocks that that, uh, that are going to be able to weather the storm and um, don't take excessive risk in places where the outlook is much less certain. And Al, what do you think? Uh, I agree 100% with Nick's idea of quality stocks, you know, good balance sheets, um, you know, some sort of, you know, secular growth that's not dependent on the general economy. Uh, maybe it's, you know, like, well, Al, help me out. Like, well, maybe it's a Dan or her or something like that. These are classically, you know, it has big water business, big uh, healthcare franchises, you know, good market positions. You know, that's always the one that comes to the top of my head. So, like, that's, you know, that should be fine no matter what happens. 
Um, and then, you know, don't take excessive risk. Right. So, you know, when, when we say like, you know, don't take excessive risk, right. You know, you, you channel your inner Jack, how you take your, maybe your stock allocation when you're feeling super bullish is 60, maybe you're down to 50. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, you stick all of your money under the mattress, but I, I agree with exactly what Nick said. Don't take excessive risk and stick with quality. And, and then the other thing is like this trading range, I agree with them there too, right? If we go into earnings season and we're at 37, 3,800, you know, you're probably set up for like, oh, it's, you know, oh, it wasn't as bad as expected and all the stocks are going up on reasonable earnings. If you're at 42 or 41, different story. So I'm with Nick. And do, do either of you have thoughts? Ben, what do you yeah. What do you think? What do I think? Um, yeah. I'm torn. Um, I, I, the market is certainly acting like uh, it can trade through this. I wouldn't be surprised if we get more upside, but I am. Uh, I, I do think we hit the new low before the end of the year. So I, I'm trying not to get too excited by uh, the moves higher um, and uh, just trying to, uh, um, you know, just just trying to let it play out a little bit because um, I, I, I just think there's too much going on for the the market and the economy to be able to handle it uh, in such a I guess a fairly blase fashion mm. so well I think that probably uh, brings us to the end of our call unless uh, there's any other uh, anything that you guys want to say uh, before we sign off do we miss any subjects that were, were totally pressing uh, well, Ben, I know you wrote about um, U.S. stocks versus international stocks in yeah. your column this past weekend. Um, what's the outlook there? You know, I, again, this is a, a very long-term kind of view, but we always see the the markets move very cyclically. Um, where you get, uh, you know, it's, it's almost biblical. You get seven good years followed by seven bad years, kind of thing. Um, and and we had that. Uh, you know, we've had the good years uh, here for the U.S. stock market, massively outperformed. Andrew Barry on uh, the Barron's Roundtable TV show uh, over the weekend noted that uh, the uh, U.S. stocks, I think, were averaging about twelve percent. Uh, uh, annually um, over the last decade, where uh, the rest of the world was average about 4% a year. Um, so massive outperformance. And what we usually get, though, is you, you do get mean reversion. And so I would suspect that we're going to see um, see that kind of that, that shift happening. We've already seen it a little bit. Um, I think it was uh, uh, DataTrek was talking about uh, how, um, you know, the, the U.S. stock market gains this year has really been uh, a function of big tech. Um, that uh, you take those stocks out and, we're, and we'd be down. Uh, when you look overseas, uh, the the breadth is much broader, um, and it just looks like a, a more solid, solid rally um, outside the U.S. So um, I, I just think it's uh, there are lots of reasons uh, to to perhaps favor uh, non-U.S. stocks uh, right now. Um, okay, well let's leave it there. Um, I think that is all the time we have for today. Uh, thanks for being here, Nick and Al, and thank you to the audience for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow um, on Investing in Diamonds. Barron Senior Reporter Lauren Foster will speak with Cormac Kinney, founder and CEO of Diamond Standard, on the case for hard assets in an inflationary environment, where diamonds fit into an investment portfolio, and how to access this emerging asset class. Thank you again for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.